Everybody's doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Exodus, The Way Out is our current teaching series. We're talking about my favorite topic this weekend, the glory of God, God's glory. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to work our way to actually uh, to chapter 34, 32, 33, 34. We'll cover those three chapters. Also, grab your sermon notes out, and uh, you can follow along with us. You'll see at the top of the sermon notes, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. It asks this question, what is the chief end of man? That's a good question. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You probably should memorize that. That's a good one to memorize. It's really, that's the answer. That's a, that's a big answer. It will take you the rest of your life to live that out. And uh, I think it's best stated, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God's glory is best displayed in lives that are most satisfied in him. So if you want to live your life for his glory, best way to do it is to find your deepest satisfaction in him. And, And in fact, when I discovered this a number of years ago, it was revolutionary. It's been life transforming for me. And, uh, and, th- and that is, you don't have to choose between living for the glory of God or living for your maximum happiness because they are one in the same pursuit. God's glory, your satisfaction are one in the same pursuit. Now, no topic brings you greater healing wholeness and happiness than beholding God's glory. Uh, we, I, I said it last week, let me say it again, that the Christian life is not a call to, to behave, but it's a call to behold. Believe me, when you behold his glory, it's gonna transform your behavior. Every dimension of your life will be transformed. Second Corinthians 3.18 says it's in the beholding of his glory we become whole. We talked about it last week. If you missed that message, I would go online and listen to it. Really an important message. In fact, out of the book of uh, Exodus that we've been studying last week, this week, uh, and the previous week, the holiness of God and then the beholding of his glory becoming whole, and then this week are probably the three most important messages throughout the book. Um, And so I would encourage you to to listen to, to all three of these. But this one in particular, the glory, the glory of God. So no topic brings you greater healing, wholeness, and happiness than beholding God's glory. But no topic brings with it more spiritual warfare. Why is that? Why is that? Because fundamentally, that's what we're all about. That's what life is all about. And so if the enemy can take you out of that, get you off your game, so to speak, then he's got you. Well, how does he do that? Well, I've got a couple verses there for you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, this is what he does to unbelievers. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So he blinds people from seeing the glory of Christ. And for those of us that have seen and tasted of his goodness and his glory, what is he trying to do with us? He's trying to lead us astray. This is what he says what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:3, he says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's trying to get you to put your heart's deepest loyalties and affections on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's up to. Because he knows that when you behold him, when he's at the center of your life, when he's at the core of your trust and your treasure in your life, it will transform your life. So that's where we're headed with our study. This is a good study. This was really a good study for me. I hope it will be for you. So let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll pray and then... um, We will read through our text. We're not going to read all three chapters. We'll kind of hop, skip, and jump. I'll explain all three chapters to you, and then we'll unpack our notes. I was was meditating on, uh, it was 1810 of Proverbs this last week. It was some verses that popped off the page to me, 
And it was basically, it was just saying that the, the name of the Lord is a high tower and the righteous run to it and are saved. That's what I want us to do this morning as we pray, as we begin our time in our Bible study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Let's run into his name and find perspective, find peace, find pleasure, unlike this world can ever give us. So, Father God, your majesty is unparalleled. Your beauty is unsurpassed. Your wisdom is is unmeasurable. Your goodness is unimaginable. Your greatness is unsearchable. And your love is unchanging. Your glory is best displayed in lives that are most satisfied in you. This is both compelling because it encourages our natural desire to be happy, but it is also convicting because none of us, none of us are as happy in you as you demand or deserve. And so we pray through the study of your holy word and the work of your Holy Spirit, open our spiritual eyes, ears, and hearts to what your glory is, why we need it, how we can get it so that we will become more and more whole and more and more radiate your glory to the people in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. Take a look at Exodus chapter 32. We begin our reading there. Got your Bibles in front of you. We'll try to show you most of these verses up on the screen that I'll be reading, but I'll be highlighting the other ones here. Fascinating stories. We've been working through the through the book of Exodus. Where are we so far in this study? If you haven't been with us, so the first 19 chapters are really about let my people go. It's about redemption. He sets us free from the things that enslave us. It's a great picture of how Christ sets us free from those things that enslave us, those things that we would love more than we love him that enslave us and ultimately disappoint us and devastate us. And so that's what the first half of the book is about. He sets the people free from Egyptian bondage. They come to to, uh, Mount Sinai uh, where Moses goes up on the mountain, and and this is where God begins to uh, develop a covenant relationship with them. And he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives them instructions on the tabernacle where God will dwell, where they'll meet with God, and then gives them instruction on priests and the sacrifices, all part of this connection with God. So the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 19, is redemption. Second half of the book, 20 to 40, is about relationship. It's about intimacy with God. It's really quite fascinating. It's It's beautiful. And so, so we pick up the story with Moses is up on the hill, and guess what the people are up to as he's up on the hill? Not good things, okay? This is a great picture of all of us. And look at chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Who's Aaron? Anybody know? The, the brother, brother of Moses. And so together... Uh, to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall uh, go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron, Aaron should know better, but he's a knucklehead right here, okay? Because he's going to do something that's really, really stupid. And so So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Keep that in mind. He made a golden calf, okay? And you you need to know that. And so, and, and they said, these are your gods. O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron is supposed to be the priest, okay? That's, that's his position. That's his job. But he's leading the folks astray. He's giving in to their demands and their desires. Verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In the meantime, God is interacting with Moses or Moses is interacting with God. And God tells Moses in verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf, 
and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What would this be likened to? Well, this would be like um, finding your spouse in bed with another lover on your honeymoon night. That's what this is about. After all God has done for them, and he's cultivating covenant relationship with them, they're impatient, and they're running off with another lover. Notice God's response, verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So he's going to do some purging here. And in verse 11, Moses intercedes and prevails for the people. Moses is a type of Christ for us. Verse 15, Moses comes down with the tablets and breaks them over the head of Aaron. <laughs> is that how you guys read it? No, that's actually nowhere in the text, okay? But that's what I would have done, okay? I'm thinking... Dude, what is wrong with you? I would have broken right over his head. And, uh, but he doesn't do that. He does break the tablets, but not on Aaron's head. Verse 20, he destroys the calf. This is really kind of, it's a bit humorous, but I wouldn't have wanted to be there because how, how does he destroy the calf? Look at verse 20. It won't be up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> and you'll drink every bit of it. Sounds like a parent, you know, like drink. You're going to drink every bit of that. And then, and then notice Aaron in verse 22, Aaron comes up with some of the most lame excuses I've ever heard. I mean, look, look at verse 24. So I said to them, this is Aaron speaking, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Why? It all of a sudden just appeared. See, that's the reason why I would have broke that, those tablets right over his head. He should have got him in a headlock right then and just, you moron, you. I'm not, I don't believe that a bit. Verse 25, Moses causes the idolaters to be slain. Ow. Verse 30 of this chapter, Moses prays for the people. Now we jump to chapter 33, and we'll continue reading here. And the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel, notice not the angel of the Lord, there's a difference between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord, this is an angel, okay, this is not the angel which would be the Lord Jesus Christ, so this is just an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, now notice this, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So, so here's, here's what's uh, fascinating about this. This is the very religion the average American most wants. This is the very religion that the health and wealth gospel promotes. I don't know if you noticed what he's, he's offering them. He's saying, I'm going to give you all the prosperity and all the peace and all the pleasure you want, but I'm not going with you. So, so this is a God as a means to an end rather than the end. And so give us our prosperity, give us our peace, give us all that we need. And, and, and I said the prosperity gospel, which is uh, the health and wealth gospel, basically what they teach you is a formula. You work this formula and then God owes you. If you work the formula right, if you don't work the formula right, then you don't get the prosperity, the peace, and and so, and so that's in our, in our culture today, predominantly, and oftentimes even taught in churches, that you do all the right things, and then we'll be a nation of, you know, God will give us, uh, we'll be prosperous economically and militarily and, and politically in every dimension. That's what we want more than anything. We, we actually, and many people want that more than they want God's presence. 
And that's what he's offering them here. He's offering them all, you're going to go to the promised land, you can have all the pleasure, you can have all the fun in the promised land, milk and honey. This is a wonderful place. This is what they've longed for. And that's what he's saying, but I'm not going with you because I'll kill you guys. I'll wipe you out because I'm holy and you're sinful. Now, what's interesting is we continue reading, the people mourn, verse 4, they mourn. So they're, they're a bit in touch with some reality here. And then verse 7, you see the tabernacle is moved outside the camp. There's some phenomenal words spoken about Moses here in verse 11 where it says that he would speak to Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It also says something quite interesting about Joshua. This is where he kind of shows up here on the scene. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. There was a hunger in Joshua's heart for the glory of God at a very young age. And then at verse 12, you've got Moses. He's interceding for the people. We'll pick up our reading in verse 15. And notice how Moses responds now. So God said, okay, well, I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Look what Moses says. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? That word distinct actually means holy. Remember we talked about holiness a few weeks ago? Holy means a, a cut above, to be cut or to separate, uh, to, uh, to be distinguished from, literally is what he's saying here, distinct from so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. That's the most important prayer you could ever pray. In fact, I would encourage all of us to pray that prayer regularly and consistently, not just for you, you as an individual, but for us as a church. God, show me your glory. It's a great prayer. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass, till I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, verse thir uh, chapter 34, the tablets are replaced and then I want to pick up the reading in verses 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and said with him and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, the next part of this chapter, covenant, the covenant is renewed, and then Moses comes off the mount and his face is glowing and it talks about that in verse 29. His face is, is radiant and he has to cover it with a veil because it's really frightening to people. Now, which I think it tells us something a little bit about people who spend time with God radiate his glory in a manner that is, that is always warm and welcoming, never cold and condemning. Convicting, yes. Condemning, no. And, and that's what we see here in, in, in this story. Pretty amazing. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, pretty profound I love chapter 33, probably my favorite, Show Me Your Glory. 
This topic is my, one of my favorite topics, probably my favorite topic of really understanding the glory of God because it's where we find our deepest satisfaction. So what is the glory of God? That's the first question. And then we'll look at why we need it and then how we get it. So what is the glory of God? It is the manifested presence of God. Manifested presence of God. Presence of God. As opposed to the omnipresence of God. You need to know the difference between the two. Most of us are familiar with the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139 talks about the omnipresence of God. Psalm 42 actually talks about he's longing, the psalmist is longing for the manifested presence of God. Maybe you're familiar with the text, as the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God. What is he wanting? He's not, he understands the omnipresence of God. He's wanting the manifested presence of God. God, it's been a while. I'm dry. I'm thirsty. I'm longing for you, God. I need for you to reveal yourself to me. I know it here in my head. I want to experience it in my heart. That's what he's praying for. Now, Exodus chapter 33, verses 15, 18, and 20. Verse 15, it says, And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Talks about presence. Verse 18 Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 20, God responds, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. You see the connection between those three words? Presence, verse 15, glory, verse 18, and face, verse 20, are all synonyms. So we're talking about the same thing. Presence, glory, face. Exodus 33:11. I, I, I read this uh, to you. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So we're talking about the manifested presence of God as one of the ways that we understand his glory. The word for presence in the Bible is often face. The face of God is the sign of God's favor. Numbers chapter 6, the, the high priest prayer and blessing. You guys are familiar with that? We do that oftentimes at the end of our communion. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So it's, it's, it's seen in that priestly prayer to have the face of God is to have his favor I shared this uh, a few weeks back when we were taking communion. Research has shown that there is a joy center in the brain of children that is trained and activated by the countenance or the face of their caregivers or their parents. So by a parent's response, it can stir up joy in a child. It's the face of the father that activates, that activates joy in us. It's the face of the Father that activates joy in us. So the presence of God is his shining face directed at, at, uh, at us. So the manifested presence of God is an experience really of God's favor. Not to just know that you have God's favor, but to have an experience of his favor. That there are those moments where you have that overwhelming sense that God is looking at you and not only does he accept you, and cares for you. He's got all your bases covered. There's that overwhelming sense that I'm going to be okay. He's, he's navigating and taking care of you. So he accepts you. He cares for you. But he, he celebrates you. He smiles. His face is beaming upon you. It's radiating. And you know in your heart at that moment he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. That's got to be more than just a concept in your head. You've got to experience that. That's the manifested presence of God. That's what Moses is experiencing as he's encountering God, as he's, he's enjoying God. Now, how do we do that? How do we experience that? It's, we can experience all of that because if, if you have responded to the love of God and have taken and have taken refuge in Jesus' saving work in your behalf instantaneously, when you do that, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the favor of God. If you knew that, not just know it here, but if you had regular experiences of the favor of God, his face shining upon you. 
You could face anything. Believe me. It's, it's a realization, God, you're for me. And because of that, I will not fear. It's that favor of God. I had that card that was in my, that's what I was looking for in my Bible. It's somewhere in here. Don't you just love it when things get lost in your Bible? Anybody like that? So there was a card in here. There was, I was meditating on some verses this last week, and I've got a whole bunch of verses here. I'd have to go through them. It would take me too long, and this message is already way too long, and so I'm not going to take out the time to do that. But from time to time, don't mind me. I'm going to just pick this up and just look for it, okay? Because I had on that card a couple of those verses. One of them was 1810. The name of the Lord is a high tower, and the righteous run to it and are saved. The other one was... Um, uh, See, I need that psalm. It was Psalm 18, 5 and 6, where it just talked about, uh, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. And the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. And because the Lord is for me, I will not fear that verse popped off the page to me this last week. I had the favor of God. And I'm telling you, whatever I was struggling with at that moment, boom, it was gone. See, that's, that's, um, that's the glory of God. That's the manifested presence of God as opposed to the omnipresent. He's always with us, but we need to have that manifested presence of God. It is the truth that is not just clear to the mind but real to the heart. When you read his word, it's not just print on a page, but it comes after you, both convicting you and comforting you. When you pray, it's not just some lifeless, dry routine, but it's entering the throne room of the king of the universe who happens to be your father, who lavishes his love upon you. When you sing songs of praise and worship to Christ Jesus, it engages and it energizes your whole person, your mind, your emotion, will completely transforming you. Here's the next thing. It is all of his holy attributes combined. It's all of his holy attributes combined. Exodus uh, 33, 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. That's what he says Exodus 33, 19, part of our text. Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. Why is that so significant? Name. Name speaks of character. It's all of his attributes combined. By the way, we don't define God. God defines himself. You guys know that. And he defines himself through his word. Isaiah 6, 3, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters God the glory of God and uh, the holiness of God. And one called to another and said, that is the seraphim, said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your what? Glory. glory. Why is it holy? Wait a minute. He says, holy, holy, holy. You're holy, but then he says, the whole earth is full of your glory. Why is that? Why did he say that? What is glory as opposed to holiness? Well, holiness is, is all of his attributes, perfect in every way. In fact, this is what we said about his holiness a few weeks back. It's his incomparable transcendent perfection by which he tolerates no rivals and allows no impurity in all of his attributes. So he's holy, he's perfect in his sovereignty, his power, his judgment. He's perfect in his grace, love, and mercy. The reason why you're all stressed out and all angry and all upset is because you don't know that. You're not living in the reality of that. He's perfect. He's going to take care of you. He's got all the bases covered. And, and that's why you, you in, in, in understanding this and having this, uh, this manifested presence of God, that his attributes, all his name and all that he is becomes more real to you. We could really actually put it into two categories to, to simplify this. You've got the category of his greatness. You've got the category of his, of his goodness. You've got the category that he's, he's transcendent. You've got the category that he's eminent. You've got the category that he is uh, he's powerful. 
You've got the category that he's personal. You need to maintain those. There must be balance between the two if you're going to really understand God and have an experience of God, having the manifested presence of God. So, so his greatness, here's just a few of his attributes, sovereignty, power, judgment, his goodness. He's, he's grace, love, and mercy. And I understand that there are, there are churches and there are people out there that would emphasize his, his goodness to the exclusion of his greatness. Or they'd emphasize his greatness to the exclusion of his goodness. You don't, don't do that. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, is that there are legalistic churches that will talk about his judgment all the time to the exclusion of his love and grace. And then you've got churches that are more liberal that will talk about his grace and love all the time to the exclusion of his judgment. You need both because it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting, and that's what eliminates fear. If you've got fear in your life, is you're not understanding the combination of those two together. I know he's good, I know he's good, but, but I'm just really frightened. Well, then you don't know that he's great because he has the capacity to take care of you in his goodness. So that's why you need to understand that he's transcended. He's beyond your wildest dreams when it comes to his greatness. He's powerful. He created everything, and yet at the same time, he loves you. So you've got to have the combination of two, and that's what eliminates the fear. It's his greatness. It's the greatness that causes his goodness to comfort us. We, we are comforted by that, and it's his, it's his goodness that makes his greatness so convicting it brings humility, eliminating pride. Oftentimes when I come across people who are, are pretty arrogant, I see it more from my background. I come from more of a Pentecostal uh, charismatic background. I see a lot of really arrogant people. I think they confuse confidence with, uh, uh, with arrogance. And they talk about how they've spent time with God. And I'm thinking, no, you haven't spent time with God. You'd be much more humble. Because I'm telling you, it's his, it's his greatness that makes his goodness so comforting, it's his goodness that makes his greatness so convicting, humility eliminating pride. So what should be a healthy understanding of this encounter with God? You should walk away from an encounter with God with humble confidence. You should be humbled and yet built up at the same time knowing that God is for me and yet I'm humbled by that. I can't believe that the creator of the universe would be my friend. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? You need that. That's what you need. That's what transforms us. Okay, but I, to really understand this, I had to use some superlatives to understand his glory. So here's the next one. It is his breathtaking beauty, infinite indescribableness, and supreme significance. There's a lot there. And that's what he's saying. Show me your glory. He's saying, show me your breathtaking beauty, your infinite indescribableness, and your supreme significance. I gave you some other verses there, so when you study this next week, you can study other places. The whole Bible's packed full of the glory of God, but there's specific areas where you'll see people have this encounter with his glory. Isaiah chapter six, Ezekiel chapter one, which happens to be the wildest and the most detailed description of the glory of God in all of scripture. And then, then you have Luke chapter nine. You guys familiar with the uh, Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. You remember uh, Peter's response to the glory of God? What did he do? He's like, let's build a tent. Let's camp out right here. I want to stay here forever and ever. This is really wonderful. This is great. He was humbled, and yet he was unbelievably courageous and confident in that same, in that same way. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, everybody look up here. I need to tell you something. And I know that some of you are going to walk out of here and just, just kind of brush it off and... and and forget what I just said, but I, I pray that this will stick with you, that what we're talking about here this morning is your greatest need. I know you could give me a whole list of things that you need right now. I would push it to the side and say, no, 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 no. This is what you need. You need for God to show you his glory. That's what you need more, more than anything. People are starving for the glory of God. We hear all, about all these shootings that are happening all the time. It's, it's troubling. And, and everybody tries to deal with, you know, we deal with the symptoms typically in our culture today. We think it's, well, if we, if we take care of this and we deal with that, no, 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 no. Those folks need to see the glory of God more than anything. It's a problem of their heart and their spiritual eyes. We desperately need the glory of God. People are starving for God's glory, but most would not give this diagnosis of their broken and troubled lives. 
Let me read to you a quote from, uh, it's a book called Not God Enough, J.D. Greer. And uh, the subtitle is, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. Listen to what he says. He says in the book, he says, I am in part the product of a Christian culture that has fostered and promoted a small domesticated view of God. The Western Christianity in which I have been immersed focuses on the practicality of faith. We present God as the best way to a happy and prosperous life. We show how God is the best explanation for unanswered questions and the best means to the life we desire. Our worship services seem more like pep rallies accompanied by practical tips for living than encounters with, rather than encounters with the living God who stands beyond time and whose presence is indescribably glorious. These shallow glimpses of God are fine as long as our faith remains untested, but they are utterly insufficient in the midst of serious questioning or intense suffering. Now, you guys need to know the difference between man-centered churches and God-centered churches. Our culture is packed full of man-centered churches. they'll, They'll bring up the Bible. They'll talk about it. They'll proof text it, but it's more centered on man, and it comes off really many times more like humanism, very subtle, very destructive ultimately, because what we need more than anything is a high view of God, the glory of, the glory of God. There's a song that I, was, uh, I grew up singing. Maybe you're familiar with it, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. How many are familiar with that song, show of hands? Okay. Wow, you guys are old like me. Um, yeah, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will go what? Strangely dim in what? In the light of his glory and grace. Listen, what are you struggling with this morning? What kind of temptations are you up against? What are your trials? What's eaten at you? What's coming after you that you can't shake? I'm telling you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Pray, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see you. See, it's in the light of his glory that the things of this world grow strangely dim. Trials don't loom so large. Temptations aren't so alluring. The trauma of relationships and life aren't so lingering in the light of his glory and grace. I got wrecked a long time ago. When I began to get glimpses of the glory of God, I told you this is like my favorite topic. It was over. Nothing else satisfies like the glory of God. Nothing will get you out of your inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression, like the glory of God. You need a dose of his glory. Believe me, that's what you need more than anything. That's what our culture needs more than anything, is to see and to savor the glory of God. And in seeing and savoring the glory of God, that's when we begin to show his glory to this lost and dying world. So why do we need it? Well, I just told you. Well, it's because we were created for it. That's why. Here, that's your fill in the blank. Why do we need God's glory? It's what we were created for. Exodus thirty-three fifteen. Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, I want us to just focus on that just for a minute. Do you hear what he's saying? If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up out of here. Wait, 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 wait. Moses, you got the promised land. An angel of the Lord's gonna lead you there. Not the angel, but an angel, and I'm not going with you because I'm gonna kill all of you if I do. But you got, you got your prosperity, you got your peace, you got your pleasure. He says, nope, nope, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want it. It almost sounds... To most people, they go, what are you, what are you, insane? No, 
Moses would say, no, no, you're insane because if you haven't seen the glory of God, there's nothing compares to the glory of God. We could put it this way. This is what he's saying in essence. I would rather stay in the wilderness and eventually die. I would rather stay in the wilderness with your presence than go into the promised land without your presence. Do you hear him? They can have all of the treasures. I've got you. What am I going to do without you? I need you. I'm desperate for you. That's what he's saying. Now, if you value getting from God as a means to an end more than being with God, God being the end, then hardship will cause you to not only question God's goodness, but also to question whether living for him is worth it. You'll be disillusioned by the pain and perplexity of life. And, and what Moses is saying, give me the pain and perplexity. I don't care. As long as I have you, I can face anything. That's what he's saying. That is so profound. I pray that that would go down into your heart. You would understand that. No matter what happens to you, if you have his presence, you can face anything. Some of us don't know it because maybe you've never experienced it. Maybe you've never had the, the manifested presence of God. Once you have, it's your, it, game over, man. There's no playing games. You're, you're hungry to see more of his presence, to experience him and to know him. What he's saying here is that life is meaningless without an experience of your glory, your presence, your face. It's the very reason for our existence. That's what he's saying. Romans eleven thirty six. we were created for God's glory. That's what it tells us. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to live our life for God's glory. And uh, if this is true, then God matters more than anything, and therefore we should evaluate everything in our life by whether it hinders or enhances our relationship with God and living for his glory. I love this analogy between what does that mean to really live for his glory? Here's a quick little analogy to help you to understand that. We are to glorify God not like a microscope magnifies things, but like a telescope magnifies things. Think about that just for a minute. Microscopes make small things look big, but telescopes make things that are enormous but look small look like they really are huge. So as one person put it, here's a quote, Christians are, aren't called to be con men who glorify their product out of proportion to reality because they know that the competitor's product is far superior. They're called to make God's greatness begin to look as great as it really is because they know there is nothing and nobody infinitely and eternally bigger and better than God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but also by his glory being rejoiced in. So you've got to see his glory. You've got to have to have eyes. Remember, the enemy is blinding the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. But he, what does he do with us? He tries to lead us astray, to focus on created things over and above the creator. Nothing is more life-liberating and soul-satisfying. So not only are we created, why do we need his glory? It's because we were created to know and experience his glory, but nothing is more life-liberating or soul-satisfying. So let me ask you this question real quick. Uh, you can discuss it with the folks sitting around you. We'll just, we'll just make a really quick one here, but uh, ask them, where is God, where does God, how does God reveal his glory to us? How do, how do we see his glory? You can see his glory all around this place this morning. And you can see it when you go outside too, but how does God reveal his glory? You need to be able to answer this question, by the way, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. How does God reveal his glory to us? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you about 20 seconds. Okay, did you guys get the answer? Okay, some of you are kind of not talking at all. Some of you are, are sleeping right now, so you better wake up, okay? Here we go. So here it is. Psalm 19. 
it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So the first part of it tells us that God reveals himself to us. His glory is revealed through the heavens, through creation. And then if you go down a little bit further, it tells us it's through his word. And then a little bit further down, it tells us it's through our conscience. So you could put it like this, creation, commandments, conscience. In Romans 1, it tells us that it's, it's revealed to us through creation. Romans 2, it tells us it's revealed to us through our conscience. I'm not going to get into the specifics of what that means in our conscience, but number th- uh, uh, chapter 3, Romans 3, it tells us that it's revealed ultimately through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And, but I want to focus just kind of on the, created, the, the creation aspect of it. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from God, it tells us. So every created beauty, glory, pleasure was created by God to lead our affection to him. They're gifts from God and pointers to God. In all the beauties, in all the loves, in all the pleasures, in all the joys you've ever known or sought in creation is a dim glimpse of what you will find in the creator. The next time your favorite team wins, or you're eating at your favorite restaurant with family or friends, or your heart is captivated by a song or a beautiful landscape, say to yourself, God is like this, only better. God is like this, only better. This is a gift from God and a pointer to God. And believe me, you can have a worship experience right there on the spot. As, as your praise doesn't terminate on the created thing, but it rolls on up to the creator that every good and perfect gift comes from. Listen to what uh, a book I read a number of years ago, Eyes Wide Open, Steve DeWitt, Enjoying God and Everything. Listen to what he says. He says, I sometimes wonder how it is possible that our culture and society could have missed this truth on such a massive scale. When every popular beauty and pleasure in our culture shouts that God is beautiful, how can so many millions of people completely miss the point? How can they not hear? How can they look and listen and touch and taste and not get it? What if the Grand Canyon isn't just a hole in the ground, but an expression of divine vastness? God's self-portrait draws millions, but do they really see it? What if we were to recognize that the world's music rings with a spiritual echo of the harmonies of the Trinity? What if the millions who attend a NASCAR race this year would come to understand that they are doing more than cheering a favorite driver, that they are seeking intimate connection with the ultimate great person? What if we were to realize that every sunset viewed, every sexual intimacy enjoyed, every favorite food savored, every song sung or listened to, every home decorated, every rich moment enjoyed in this life isn't ultimately about itself, but is an expression and reflection of God's essential character. Wouldn't such beautiful and desirable reflections mean that their source must be even more beautiful and ultimately most desirable? Good stuff. Good stuff. Albert Einstein was never interested in church or organized religion, according to one of his students, Charles Misner, because he had seen more majesty than he could have ever imagined in the creation of the universe, and he felt that what most preachers said about God was blasphemous and were not talking about the creator of the universe. If God's glory doesn't captivate your heart, then something else will that will be ultimately shallow and fleeting in satisfaction. And so we see, I I gave you the verses there, Hebrews 11. We see that. Moses knows that. It says in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, this is why he's, he's crying out, God, show us your glory. I don't want the promised land. I want to see you. I want to know you. And it says right here, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, Now, why would you need to seek God's glory? Why would you need to seek his glory? Because that's what we're answering the question, why we desperately need it. Well, that's how we're wired up. And there's nothing that will sat- bring more soul satisfaction and life liberation than his glory. But you need to seek his glory just for your own sanity. 
Because if you don't, remember in the garden, we were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the face of our creator and to receive from him all the acceptance, security, significance we would ever need. But that spiritual alienation, when we turned away from God, it made us psychologically alienated, empty on the inside. The Bible calls it pride or conceit. The word conceit means vain glory, empty of glory. We're empty of that. Therefore, that's what drives this desperation to fill the emptiness inside. And if we don't fill it up with God, we will fill it up with something else because we were created to have something at the center of our life. You shall have no other gods before me. There's not a third option. Well, I choose not to have a God today. No, you will have a God. It'll either be the one true and living God or it will be a counterfeit God. You have no other choice. And so you do this. You seek him for your own sake and sanity because something else will replace him. Anything you look to more than God for your meaning, hope, and happiness will become increasingly boring and require greater and greater doses after the initial rush. Only God and his love become more and more engaging, exhilarating, and satisfying. See, living for God's glory not only satisfies the inconsolable human longing, but also makes everything else in life less vital and your life less fragile. C.S. Lewis, it was a quote I read a few weeks ago. Let me read it again. He says, it would seem, this is from the weight of glory, his writing, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You can never get out of romance or money or achievements or career or acquisitions what only a relationship with God can bring. Here's the last part. How do we get God's glory? Nothing can keep you from experiencing God's glory except idolatry. We've been talking about that throughout. And you see that in the folks. Four times they're stiff-necked people, proud, stubborn, insubordinate because they think they're smarter than God. They think that God's holding out on them. They can find better things apart from God. Idolatry is looking to other things besides God to make us feel like we matter. Here's the next point. You know you have a golden calf when you are paralyzed, when it is threatened, bitter, when it is blocked, and in despair, when it is lost. Now, let me just say, let's just say that your, your job is, was, is really important, and you've heard that there's a possibility of layoffs. There's nothing wrong with being anxious, but if you're paralyzed by that, it's a golden calf. If you lose your job because of uh, your boss or something and you're, you're angry, it was kind of a, a, maybe a, an injustice that was done to you and you're angry, that's okay, that's healthy, you need to work through that. But if you're bitter, it's a golden calf. If you lose something and you're in despair, even to the point of suicide, that's a golden calf. It's one thing that when you lose something or someone and you're sad and you grieve it and you work through that, but if you're in despair and you're totally despondent to the point of suicide, that's a golden calf. Now, you can identify golden calves through those negative emotions, but you can also identify golden calves through positive desires and emotions. What do you get excited about? What excites you? What dominates your thoughts? What stirs your deepest emotions? What moves you to action. Follow the path of your inordinate emotions and desires and delights back to your heart and you will discover your golden calves. And then pray regularly and diligently for God's glory from a God-centered, not a self-centeredness. From a God-centeredness, not a self-centeredness. And that's what you see. You see his motive. His motive is not, God, make us look great, but God, we want you to look great. This is what will distinguish us from, from the world. We want to be a community of uncommon love, peace, justice, and beauty that the world would say, there is no way to account for that except for you, God. That's what he's praying for. And notice, too, he's praying for the glory of God. Let me ask you this. When you pray, do you pray for less problems? Or do you pray for more pleasure in your life? God, we want that home. We'd like to buy that home or we'd like to have that car. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You can pray for less problems. That's a good thing to pray for. Sometimes, many times, people come up and say, hey, I've got some problems. Could you help me to get rid of them? I'll pray for that. But could it be that God is using that problem in your life to show you more of what your heart really longs for, and that's the glory of God? How about that pleasure that you're praying for? Could it be that that could interfere with you seeing what your heart really longs for, and that is the glory 
of God. I find it really fascinating that when you read all of Paul's prayers through uh, his letters, he never, ever prays circumstance enhancement prayers for these folks that are struggling under duress, have a lot of problems and pain and persecution in their life. He doesn't pray circumstance enhancement prayers. He always prays Christ entrancement prayers. God, let them see you more clearly than ever. That's what we need. I would encourage you to pray that. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither Aim for holiness and you'll get happiness. Aim for happiness and you'll get neither. The apex of God's glory is his amazing grace. The apex of God's glory is his amazing grace. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. There's almost kind of this contradiction. When I read that, you, you look at it and you go, and this is almost seemingly contradiction you see throughout the scripture. God's merciful and yet he's just. He's loving and yet he's a just God. And that's what he's spelling out there in verses 6 through 7 of, of chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. So he does get anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In these verses, you have both the love of God, that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification, and also the justice of God, that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for sin. So which one is it? Which one is it? Is God just or is he loving? How can he be both? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God's amazing grace satisfies both his love and justice through the cross. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 tells us that God has adopted us as his dearly loved children through Christ for the praise of the glory of his grace. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now what's fascinating about this idea of the glory of God, Exodus 24, the elders got the glory of the feet of God. Moses got the glory of the back of God. We get the glory of the face of God through Christ Jesus. Absolutely amazing, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So in his justice, he doesn't ignore our rebellion or compromise his standard, but in his love, he assumes, he assumes our sin and sentences his son in our place for our sin. God's justice is honored, our sin is punished and in his love, we are redeemed and made perfect before God. On the cross, Jesus lost the face of God so that we would forever have his face, his presence, his glory. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could cry, Abba, Father, forever. And it's in the beholding of his glory we become whole. Let's pray. So Father God, we celebrate that through the cross, your son was glorified. Your people were justified. Your justice, your justice was satisfied. And your love was magnified. Amazing grace, the apex of your glory that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us? Let's sing that song. We'll sing a couple lines of that song, Amazing Grace, this morning as we conclude our time together.
Love you guys. Have a great weekend.